Hey, Hannah here from Youngbloods, and welcome back to another episode of Lessons in Hindsight, advice from the big dogs on how to be little dogs. In this episode, I talk to recruiting legend Esther Clarahan, and we have a good chinwag about fuck-ups, getting hired in COVID, life after award school, and the power of Gen Z. Just a note, this was recorded in 2020, so you might hear some references that are a year off. Now let's kick it off with how Esther got into recruiting. I was I was working in agencies and I was like a busybody and I was sort of, you know, involved in stuff and people would ask me about like who would be good for this or who would be good for that. And I just found like I was probably pretty good at picking people for it and just getting a bit of satisfaction out of doing that for, for nothing. And I, and I didn't put these two things together. And then I was unhappy in my job. I was the head of traffic, which is creative services at um, a big agency in Melbourne that was pumping out like hundreds of ads a week in retail, like hundreds for Maya. And I was the head of the department. I was 23. And I was like, I don't really want to be a suit. And I don't think I can be creative. I don't know what to do. I'll go see someone. And a friend of mine said, go see this. I, I think they called them headhunters then or they didn't say recruiters or talent. They was like personnel. So I went to see this woman on a recommendation from some high up guy at the campaign palace who was a good friend. And he rang me after the meeting and he said, how did you go? And I said, oh, shit. Um, I know she's a friend of yours, but I thought she was a bit of a fuckwish. And I said this to this guy who was like a senior person, probably 20 years older than me. And I, as soon as I said it, I thought, I really shouldn't have said that. And to his amazing credit, he was like, really? Okay. Why? And I said, because I think I could do her job better than she does because she doesn't listen to anyone. She just like tells me the jobs she's got. That doesn't seem right. And I said it as a throwaway. I could do a better job than she does. He rang the top recruiter in in town at the time and told her about me. And a couple of days later, and I hadn't thought about it again. I was still like, what was that? That was a waste of time. And this woman, Claire Worthington, who was like the doyen of recruitment, and uh, she rang me and basically offered me a job. Like she didn't offer me to meet. She just often rang, like in the movies, rang up and offered me a job. And I, and again, I thought, oh, I think that's a bit rude. I think she should meet people. So I, I agreed to meet her, not to accept a job. But it was such a weird feeling to go into an interview knowing you had the job. Yeah. But what I underestimated her that she she'd done all the research she'd rung everyone and said Esther Clarahan what's she like and she connected dots and went yep she's the one so she knew me better than I knew anything about her when I went in there she was like gotcha it's funny and that was it saying like recruiter versus recruiter just trying to like out recruit each other but I wasn't a recruiter I was just some like I was 23 I feel like it was already naturally there. I mean, as you were saying, that you're already thinking about how she could do her job better. Yeah, and I was already kind of going, oh, you need someone in TV over at DDB. I've, I know a guy. And then that guy would get the job. And I didn't think twice of about it. It's cool that it just kind so of... So it all, it, it sort of happened quite organically, which is, you know, sometimes in life, those you don't know those moments that change your life until you look back. But that, that was life-changing. 
but because I was 23, I turned 24 not long after I started, 25, around 25, 26, I was like, no, 25, I was like, I'm too young for this because people are depending on me for advice. So 30-something people just talking to me about their career. And I'd kind of answer them thinking, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'll just answer them. And I sort of felt a bit out of my depth and I quit. I quit Claire and I placed myself at a, an agency that I will not name because it's embarrassing. Um, it was called Performax. Come on, you've got to put laughter in there after that. <laughs> I just am like a side. I should <laughs> I should have had a clue from the name. It was such a two-bit shocking job. But I remember Claire's face when I resigned. She was like, what are you doing? But I couldn't handle it. It was too claustrophobic. She was right across from me. Um, it was really hard getting out every night because she would try and force me to drink half a bottle of gin. Oh, where did that come from? Um, and I would and mobile and mobile phones hadn't been invented. So I would every single night I would have to tee up friends to ring me and get me out of the office because she wanted to stay and drink and I didn't want to. Anyway, so I quit and I went and worked at this shocking place for a while. And that didn't work. And then Claire rescued me and put me in a really good design company for a couple of years. And then I was ready and she hired me back. So at 27, she got me to run the Sydney office. So that was all in Melbourne prior to that. And she got me. We stayed close. We, she was like a mentor or she was a mentor. And one night over Indian on Chapel Street, I hadn't even sat down. She said, hey, Dale, I want you to go and run the Sydney office. And I remember, you know, my bottom then sat down and I'm like, oh, again, can we just have an entree first? You know, thinking like the interview. She just blurts things before. It's like, kiss me first, Claire. So anyway, she offered me to be general manager of Apple International in Sydney. And I was like, that sounds good. I think I should leave Melbourne because I can't work out what the next thing is. And I was 27. And I, to me then, I was a lot more mature to be able to deal with people. Now I look back and go, what really changed between 24 and 27? Seriously? Yeah. But for me, a lot of life did. It was another couple of jobs. And it just leaving it and choosing to come back felt like an important thing. And so I ran her Sydney office for five years. And then I quit her again. And that was it. And, and then, then she died your own business yeah I quit and started the business do you feel like there was any you know at both her business and your own was there any huge fuck-ups that you did and you can at the time it felt like the end of the world but looking back now it's quite funny oh my god so many some of them are surprisingly recent <laughs> I can remember being at the Valon's hair studio in Paddington not so many years ago and scrolling through my phone, you know, my mail and getting an email that said, scroll down. And I realised I had forwarded all the information about the two creative people's salaries to each other. Like it was all below. And they, this was a creative team with a $100,000 difference in their pay. Oh, my God. And I think, I think the secret burned at me so much that it was like my subconscious let it happen I was absolutely devastated I was so paranoid about revealing it that I actually it's like don't there's a big piece of poo in the street don't tread in the poo don't tread in the poo don't, oh geez I just trod in the poo do you feel like that part of you just wanted to 
let it just be out. I wanted to die. No. Oh, well, oh, yeah. No, I do. I think that there was a part of me that did that subconsciously, but it wasn't my job to do that. My job was not to do that. The team should have done that with each other. And they didn't, they stopped working together, but they both ended up close to parody separately. And I think probably the right sort of thing happened, but that was such a breach of my rules to myself, you know, that I still think of that and I can conjure up how sick I felt when I saw that like in slow motion when you read that email and you realise, oh, my God. And I feel sick now thinking about it. I can imagine you just sitting there in a public place and just all the sound just kind of leaving, you just having like tunnel vision of this moment. Exactly. It it is like, it's like putting on the earbuds, block out the sound and all this, and and just the light goes onto your phone. And yes, it was a moment. And then your stomach starts coming up into you. up into your chest and into your throat and you just go I've never felt so ill in my life because it you know it was a breach and it was a bad breach but the act the thing that I breached that was also bad so I'm not trying to justify it but it's probably better out than in that secret yeah it would have felt really shit at the time but it all moved on and I mean like you said they're doing oh so it probably would be the best that they broke up I'm still I'm still friends with one of them the one that was getting (laughs) less money the one that's getting less money was getting less not surprisingly anyway look there are those sort of things where you just yeah it stays with you but I'm sure there's heaps of others where you go I've just said something I shouldn't have said or and I probably do that a fair bit but sometimes people, sometimes you can tell when you've said something that someone might not know and you see it in their face and then you try and lighten it by making it not a big deal. But, you know, you have to be a diplomat. You have to be tactful and you have to be, you have to hold secrets, but you also have to give a bit to get a bit. And, you know, to take people off guard is how you find out more about them anyway. I think maybe they find something out about me too, which they're not meant to. I'm meant to be the wallpaper. You know, you've had, you've been so successful in your career and you've done so much but I mean do you ever feel moments of self-doubt or just being like fuck you know what it's funny I was thinking about this just recently it it is an interesting thing to go from uh imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. which I think is a very normal thing and I feel it all the time I've done this job on and off for let's work out the mess if I was 24 so 35 years oh more sound effects there please um (laughs) I know what I'm doing, but I still make mistakes and I sometimes feel like I'm not very good at what I do. And then other times I'm like Beyonce, Serena. I'm Serena, I'm Beyonce, I'm, you know, I've got this. That's sometimes, but a lot of other times I'm like, I don't know how I've been getting away with this shit for so long because I don't know how to do this. Do you think everyone's feeling like that? I don't know that everyone does. The difference with getting older is not being scared of feeling that like that, I think. It's kind of like, oh, you've come to visit me again, have you self-doubt? Well, you can just F off. <laughs> I think it's really normal to be visited by it, but how you deal with it, that's the difference. And I don't dwell on it. I sort of, I kind of audit it and just go, all right, what's this based on? Is this, am I really doing this in a shit way and could I do it better or am I just shit? And you have to go through that. All I think it's important, but 
probably maybe that's one of those great differences between the men and the women that men just don't really do self-doubt at like women do they're really good at just pushing through whereas i'm like oh okay that's an interesting thing that i didn't feel like i was up to that i need to think about that and kick it to the curb beyonce style so just but it's not a bad i don't think it's a bad thing to have it i think it's it's a it's just how you deal with it but hopefully the older you get the more it become you can just minim minimize it like reducing a screen just go minimize you just really quickly you just kind of go oh yeah i I see this bang get out but i kind of like that it's there i kind of like not not going oh i i've got this because i've been working for 30 something years doing the same job it's changed so much in that time the job the industry everything you can't just go well i know what i'm doing because i've been doing it for so long because everything's had to shift and it's going to shift again big time now absolutely god recruiting in this COVID time how is that feeling for you the first thing that happened was a lot of jobs disappeared obviously the next thing that happened was like being in a like a triage of looking after people who just lost their jobs and trying to figure out pathways and things and give advice. We're still kind of in that in a in a degree. I don't think the industry's shrunk as much as it's going to, and it's going to be tough on paying paying for recruiters. Uh, but then they're going to need us and want us when it's effective to use us it's sort of like saying hi here's the yellow pages just look under talent there's a skill to it everyone's going to try and avoid a recruitment fee and they're going to try and cut costs wherever they can i think other side shows of the industry are going to be impacted it's not going to be that easy to sell tickets to events um award entry award entries will be reduced travel a lot of perks. Yeah, so especially in Australia, I don't think anyone's going to be going to France anytime soon. So We're learning to do a lot without it. You know, mm-hmm. that a lot of judging is happening through Zoom or um, it's, it's not the same. The human contact obviously is so important for everyone. The mingling, the, the stuff that happens off the quasette or, or in and around Austin music bars at South by Southwest or you know, in the um, streets of every other festival, it's really important to have that human connection. DNAD, I really wanted to go to DNAD and do that festival. You know, at the moment, there's a human humanity crisis and I think that agencies, networks are going to in part respect it and in part take advantage of it and just go, we're not going to put our money into that. So it'll it'll be down to the politics of each region and which which award shows are the strongest to survive but i think can you know can will survive but the festival might take a, a, a while to come back it's harder to be in the middle of a major recession if you're really expensive and the client has reduced spending you're vulnerable whereas if you're coming up through the industry or you're sort of closer to stepping out i don't think it impacts as greatly i i'm just i'm really glad that i'm 60 this year not 40 this year i shouldn't say that but i am i just i don't want to think about i don't want to think about never 20 years after maybe whatever this is is finished i know that i can get through it and then you know 
Yeah. It's not that I'm going anywhere for a while. But I don't I don't have to worry about I've got a business that works anywhere. For better or for worse, I don't have staff. That's been for better with COVID. You were saying that it's going to be good for people coming up in the industry. I mean, not good, like yeah. not terrible. I mean, kind of speaking in that realm, I know that there will be a lot of people graduating award school, will have graduated award school, are graduating RMIT or like other unis across Australia wanting to get into this industry at this kind of weird time. Do you have any advice or is there any advice you've been constantly giving people to kind of help them not just get their foot in the door, but kind of keep their creative juices or like energy going? The last major recession wasn't the GFC. It was the 1990 recession. That was three years or something. This is sort of a good news, bad news thing. Is A lot of people got into the industry by working for nothing because that was legal then and it's not now. So it's going to be really interesting to see how the tenacity of the people who are fighting to create jobs that don't exist, because that's what we're talking about. There's, there won't be the jobs and the hungriest, loudest, keenest, most compelling ones will be there at the door when those jobs are created they'll they'll create their own spot by through that tenacity that's the same as it was then but there they were able to just say oh i'll work for nothing and you can't do that now which is a really good thing i'm not saying it's a bad thing it's a good thing because it tended to keep a certain class inside the industry i.e people who could afford to work for nothing but the tenets of it of the tenacity and the just create creativity in terms of keeping people aware of you for that job that doesn't exist so that when it does you're the person that they want to hire or you're the team that they want to hire that's going to be the same as it was that's the skill right now and and that's always the skill there's very rarely an agency that says or when I say agency I could mean a company or internal um, creative department whatever but let's just say creative department job it's very rarely an opening that says we are looking for a junior team what tends to happen is they start keeping an eye out maybe we'll hire a team if the right team pops up or the right copywriter or art director or whoever pops up you want to be in in that orbit for when that job exists you don't want to be applying for a job that's already out there i mean it can happen and yes you can get it but once a job's advertised whether it's through linkedin or uh on an agency portal or whatever you know that you're competing against three hundred thousand, whatever but if you've got if you've build a sort of a connection with an individual or a few individuals in an agency and you make sure that you are always present to them and you've always got something to say and you're showing them that sort of ability to just keep coming back and take criticism and keep coming back and listen to advice and keep coming back. As soon as they've got a job, they'll be like, hey, Hannah, do you know anyone out there? And you'll be like, I know exactly because they're the ones who kept coming back. So that's that's how it works. And that has, that doesn't change recession, pandemic, you know, good times, bad times. It's always it always takes that. It's just how long it takes. That's the difference. This could take a while. Will require that extra ability to just persist and not give up. I think one of the I don't know whether you watched the uh, award school graduation, but Linda Knight was. She's a CCO at uh, an agency in LA now. 
but she graduated a war school during that really tough recession and she was one of the most tenacious people I've ever met and she ended up at widening Kennedy as a junior she and her creative partner now husband but they were just a team then which was adorable they were the first international hires at widening Kennedy out of McCann Erickson Sydney wow as a junior team they were like they hadn't even been at McCann a year and widening Kennedy took them to Portland and do you think it's because they were so hungry and because they kept pushing? Yeah. They took themselves to Cannes back when that wasn't even a thing. They had a portfolio, stunning portfolio. Every single bit of it almost was spec work, almost all of it. But one of the things that was real had been on the cover of Archive. It was very, very simple times then. I mean, we're talking about the 90s, but, they, they, you know, the focus and the, the application that they had was amazing. And, and they were nine years at Widening Kennedy. And I think when, during the graduation, I even put on the comments, like I remember Dan Wyden cried when they resigned. How's that? So, yeah, and I think Linda touched on the... At the award school graduation in her video, she touched on how hard it was to get in and how hard she worked, and that's what it will take. And Mieta saying, you know, I didn't place, I didn't get things on the wall. Yeah. And she just got named in the top creatives in the US. There's so many creatives that I, my mentors and have inspired me that didn't get anything on the wall, didn't place in award school. I feel like the sentiment is is it's about the experience of award school and what you do after rather than the graduation night yeah i think that's probably exactly what all of the, the talks leo and the guys nathan and dave from hawks brewing and they were there to say hey you know we started out with award school and then we had this great career but now we're brewers yeah like that none of that would have happened without award school absolutely and it's it's really interesting the kind of paths that you know you think you're going to set out on and what really happens i mean with yourself included and i've heard a lot of stories of people being like i wanted to be this thing but then completely changed and do now you... and now i'm a recruiter yeah and just kicking ass at it we'll have kicked ass continue to kick ass i mean there's probably so many people that did award school that almost feel like they don't really fit into the classic mould of what of like an art director or a copywriter or an, um, an account manager. I mean, do you have any advice to people that kind of feel like that they just don't fit anywhere, but they want to be a part of something or do something in this realm? It's, that's a really good question because part of me says, you know, maybe you have to morph a little bit to make the change. So you, you just have to sort of make them think that you fit in to fit to then go in and change. And part of me is like this generation coming up is the, probably the most exciting generation in 50 years, mine included. I think that there's something about the 60s, about that sort of revolution of we're not accepting this anymore. You, you've given us a dud planet. We've got to fix that. You know, there's so much wrong in the world. And I think that a lot of it's come like maybe overwhelming for other generations to change or they just haven't. Uh, Cindy, one of my favourite Cindy Gallup's quotes is fish can't see water. And I think this generation sees the water and can absolutely make the change. So while Old Esther goes, mm, morph in and then manoeuvre yourself and change. I think I would rather say, fuck that and 
make find the place that takes you as you are and make the change from your position of being different because i think that that's where we are in in the world now we it's not working and we need these new ideas and and this this push through from the youth of today that's just like not accepting of how things have been not in terms of where women are not in terms of how the planet is has been wrecked not in terms of how corrupt business and politics and everything is. I just, I, I sit back and go, you know, this is amazing. It's not just teenage climate activists that can, you know, capture the sort of zeitgeist of the world. It seems to be generational. And it's, you know, the way the TikTok kids have, you know, taken it to Trump. Yeah. It's, it's so cool. So that's why I don't, I don't want to give the advice that's like, fit in and then you know change from within I think punch your way through and don't apologize but you know watch and learn and listen obviously but for strategy not not to conform that's really that's really cool advice (laughs) um I'm going to do a little bit of a swerve because this is more of like a question that me personally I mean lots of people will be interested in it but this is I know that we've talked about, you know, the boys club mentality and, you know, empowering women and how important women are in this industry. I want to ask how important is it for agencies to steer away from that boys club kind of culture and how can young people starting in this industry or who are already in this industry do to avoid contributing to it? Oh, well, I look, I would like to think that a lot of that is being undone right now yeah um one of the things i think would be greater transparency on um salaries cut back to me at the hairdresser greater transparency on salaries would not have led to that moment i think if you if every agency paid their creative department or their employees thinking that the spreadsheet of salaries could be posted up online and how how would it look yeah. So the boys club, it, it, it starts with money, right? It starts with equal pay. That's a boys club. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the inner sanctum of the boys club is men get paid more than women. So if we were to treat it like it's public property, what people are paid, I think that would go a long way to breaking down the boys club. And I'm trained to not talk about it, <laughs> like as in not reveal other people. I'm happy if they do but it's not my job. It's not my, it's like personal information. You do, you do not talk about someone's salary without their permission. But I really quite like the idea, again, of the generation that's like, oh, sorry, we all share that stuff. Yeah. Whereas my generation was told not to. It's funny because, yeah. And we were told because it's rude. It's yeah. like, oh, no, we don't talk about money because money is very rude. And then... You go to the park and everyone's talking about property prices or it's like, it's not rude. It's out there. I mean, my Jen and all of my friends, we all talk about how much we make. And I mean, you know, it's, I love that. I love that, you know, there's a huge transparency. I know how much my partner makes. She knows how much I make, you know, doesn't become about the money anymore. You don't feel like someone's more valued than you are. You just, you know, and it, it does help if you're building an argument to be able to say, well, 
here are my peers and this is their salary and this is what they're getting paid if, if you're trying to build a case to be paid more. And then sometimes people are paid over and above because of an extraordinary effort over a pitch or because they were about to leave and they were a critical part of staying at an agency at the time so they were paid to stay. There's different reasons for salary and, uh, you know, discrepancies across the board. But when you can see that men are paid more than women, and I think we understand that that is still happening, I would like to see more transparency. And I think that's that's the, the key to the boys' club. I'm and, and the other thing that was that the key was a change in behaviour, again, from probably a hangover of the 90s, was taking away things that were just really kind of to entertain the sort of the, the boy or the the boys club side of a personality of a, a creative department that would be table tennis, foosball, you know, machines like that. If it's all about that as recreation, it tends to appeal to a certain group in an agency and you tend to end up with a male creative department because even though, like, I like to play table tennis, I'm not going to sit there and play it during the day. That would be stupid. Whereas guys apparently think it's okay. I'm just saying. I, I think that I think that if you build boys' toys, you end up with women who conform to being part of the boys' club, and yeah. that's that's not their fault. That's just their way of surviving. So don't have boys' toys if you don't want a boys' club. Yeah, and don't create kind of a space where only men can thrive and then so they all the boys hang out together and then they bond and then they you know stick up for each other so there's lots of you know you want to be able to do things where everyone can be involved and really thrive in that environment exactly yeah so it's it's really just putting a filter on it and going is this going to be something that everyone would enjoy doing without it becoming so bloody politically correct that it's boring yeah exactly i found it so exciting to see so many, and even like my year last year when I finished award school, how many girls just have done so well recently in award school. And just it's, and then seeing like, you know, all the young women that I know that are juniors or midweights that are really coming up. And, it, you know, I think that it's naturally changing the boys club dynamic anyway. So I think I'm really excited to see the future of what an advertising agency will look like when I look back in like 20 years and see the way it's changed. Yeah, well, they've done a lot to address unconscious bias with blind judging and um, and things like that. It's taken a while and it's really starting to show the dividends now that what's more interesting will, will be the studies further into the industry of how if the work we're doing now keeps women in the industry in 10 years when they start having families and because that's where we were traditionally losing them because we didn't have the workplace flexibility. And I always said that, you know, if, if it's flexible for men, then we'll, we will get the equality for women. Because if it's just for women, it, it'll build a resentment. So the agencies that are ahead of the curve in terms of paternity leave or making flexible job jobs for men, that they're the ones who will be, you know, ahead in retention. But COVID came along. Mm. And I think really levelled about that sort of flexibility because if any if there's any long term takeout, it'll be that 
we are more relaxed about not having people in the office and knowing that they're doing their job. Absolutely. I'm really because the bosses are in that position for the first time themselves and they can't they can't, they understand especially if there's children to be taught or laundry to be done like if you you know if you've got to get stuff done and go zoom 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 I think they're now understanding what it's like say for what was traditionally a woman to try and come back to work part time and you know, have the baby at home or whatever. It's. I hope that this is something that is a long-term benefit for the industry, not just our industry, but all industry in terms of workplace flexibility of I can't come into work today, but I am available during these hours and I will get the job done. Now, last question. What is something that you think I should have asked you today? Ooh. I don't know. It's it, you know what I liked. I liked that it was a windy chat, so it wasn't like a Q and A. And I didn't feel like oh, we haven't gone there. I think no. I think we've covered some good ground. Everything I can think of is such a cliche that I'm not even going to say it out loud. It's sort of like what do other people say about like regrets i've had a few but then again too few to mention no one's going to get that reference <laughs> i don't get that reference i'm sorry what is it from it's from frank frank sinatra singing my way mm, I he's even older than i am <laughs> and he's way way dead um no i look i think it's it's hard right now and i think that but i I feel like the world's in good hands with this, the generation that's coming through that I'm, I don't think I would have said, <laughs> sorry about all the other generations, including my own, but I don't think I would have said that before. It's, it's so, it's really exciting to know that there's this, we're not going to take it attitude. And yeah. it's, it seems to really be whether it's black lives matter or equal pay or save the planet. Or don't you dare take TikTok. It, it's, just, it's just like, you know, don't mess with us. And I love that. You know, makes me a bit jelly that I was born too soon. I, I'm, I'm glad I can sit back with the popcorn. I have to agree with you. I'm excited for the next gen to... I feel like I'm kind of on the cusp of like just before and just after being that like really late millennial where you can kind of see you kind of have a foot in both doors. But um, yeah, I've got a feeling I probably want to join the other side. I know you're definitely, you're, you're definitely in the gen. So, you know, no pressure, but just fix the world. And that's the end. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Esther Clarahan. Join us next week for another episode of Lessons in Hindsight.